Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Cole and Scott. Today's guest, nobody. Watching the Birmingham Stallions and Skip Holtz and then, you know, the, the USFL. college baseball. The USFL is freaking awesome. At least it's something to look forward to on a Saturday in June, which, bad. The, the Keep long... making that argument when they go out of the business, okay? You know? Like, well, you know, I, I'll just cherish the time that we had. I will cherish yeah. that one perfect 2022 season. Well, and they'll reform again in like two years, and then they'll go out of business again, and so on and so forth. We start our own football league. That's what we're going to do. Yeah. Are, are we recording right now? We are rolling. Hi, welcome to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Cole Napper and Scott Hines. Scott. How you doing today, buddy? Hey, I mean, you hear that intro music playing and it just gets you so amped up for some awesome people analytics talk that you're not going to get anywhere else, right? Yeah, what what musical instrument is that, Scott? Like, I don't even know. It is, uh, I'm going to guess, a synthesizer, which could be essentially anything. (laughs) (laughs) It's not real. I have no idea. I I doubt it's an oboe. I doubt it's a fiddle. My my musical knowledge is very limited. Very, very little. I wanted to say it was a ukulele, but I actually don't think it's a ukulele, so I don't know what it is. That's that's what you mentioned. You mentioned this uh, in private that you thought it was a ukulele, and I didn't know what you were referring to, but there we go. Well, do you know what a ukulele is? A little tiny uh, guitar, banjo sort of thing. Yeah, I think it, don't they come from Hawaii? I want to say Hawaii. All right, this is a People Analytics podcast, and we're talking about stuff we don't know about. So, uh, ready to pivot? <laughs> How are you doing, Cole? How's it going as we march our way into a Father's Day weekend? How are you doing? I'm doing great. I've actually had a pretty good day uh, in the sense that uh, this is one thing I want to talk to you about today because I am in vendor land central. Oh, no. Um, not Well, no, this is it's not necessarily a bad thing. Oh, um, okay. I, I have a... Uh, well, I've got two different kind of searches that have been going on. One is coming to completion, and that's what I'm pretty excited about, but the other is kind of ongoing. Um, we're looking for both a replacement for our HCM, as well as a people analytics uh, kind of tool on top of things. And uh, we we actually uh, got uh, signed a contract for a new HCM today, so that's pretty exciting. Um, and then on the people analytics front, you know, we're just kind of mi- middle of the pack, but I don't know. I was wanting to kind of talk to you today about uh, what that process is like. And again, I don't want to like, you know, give any preferences to any vendors because, you know, frankly, nobody's like paying us or sponsoring us. But um, yeah, man, uh, like, do you have any uh, tricks of the trade uh, about getting into that world? And I know we've talked before that you're not a big vendor user, but uh, I don't know. Do you have a perspective on that? Because I know I have some pretty strong feelings. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's just start off by saying that I'm just a simple caveman, simple caveman, data analyst sort of guy. What 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 is an HCM? Just for so everyone is aware. Okay, HCM stands for human capital management. So it's like human uh, sometimes people call these like HRIS tools or human resource information systems. I kind of like HCM better. Mostly and this this is the real truth. Mostly just because it has one fewer letter, and so I don't have to say four <laughs> letters instead of three letters. Um, but but really, you know, what we're looking to do is to kind of move into the modern era <laughs> of, yeah. of HCMs. Um, 
The thing that you run into though with vendors, which is I think nobody really teaches you this stuff. And that's why I, I kind of wanted to talk about it today is vendor negotiation is an art and getting kind of what you need out of vendors. And, and the reason why I, this is a riff I say with my team all the time is why is vendor negotiation hard? It's hard because your incentives are fundamentally misaligned unless you can align them. Meaning the goal of a vendor is to do as little work for you as possible for as much cost as possible. And your goal as the customer is to pay as little as possible and get as much out of the vendor as possible. Right? So of your course. incentives are fundamentally misaligned. So you like, look at this equation, you say, okay, well, is there kind of a, a door number three If door number one is, you know, they fleece you and door number two is you fleece them. Is there a door number three where, you know, you both get the best of both worlds. And, and I've seen, is, yeah. It's already setting up to be kind of like a adversarial relationship, uh, which I, I guess in a way it is. Like you have conflicting interests on both parties. Uh, but I, I think my, my, my first question is like, wh why would you do this through a vendor as opposed to doing it in-house? Like I... I, I work at a very large company where almost everything is done in-house. Obviously, you work at a startup where that's not always possible. I'm also of the mind frame that I, I'm a tinker. I like to tinker. I like to figure things out. It doesn't mean that it's always going to be right. I don't always have. I am a tinker. <laughs> I don't always have the right answer, and I can't always produce good results. Like I, I will be totally forthcoming with that. But there are situations we need to call in the relief pitcher, i.e. a vendor, to... Yeah, do, do the job. Well, for well, you. So let, let's pick on this for a second, because I think this is why the two vendor searches are a little different. Like the HCM vendor search, almost no companies. I mean, I could probably count on two hands the number of companies that actually build their own HCM from scratch. Right. It's very atypical to do that because that's a it's a commoditized market. Like, why would you build it when it's just a commoditized market that you could just go buy? best in class for a cheap price on a per employee basis out in the marketplace. Is that, like, buy, like, uh, is, is that like buying like uh, Outlook or your own email system essentially? Yeah, I mean, it, it would essentially be like, hey, I'm just, in, I'm gonna build Microsoft Excel or Microsoft the whole <laughs> office suite, or you could just go buy Microsoft, you know, or, or Google suite or whatever, you know, name your product that you like. Um, but you like, why would you do that when you already have best in class out there? Whereas the, the people analytics vendor is a little bit different. Whereas, you know, we've had the build versus buy discussion. I think, you know, a lot of companies, frankly, would choose the build route, whereas others might choose the buy route in that regard. Um, but kind of kind of going back to the HCM vendor for a second, mm -hmm. one thing, I, and I do want to get into this in a future podcast and maybe even have a guest to talk about it, is that is it's something that's being experimented on a little bit that I am extremely interested in is these companies that are going with low code tools yeah. to build their own like applicant tracking systems and their own HCMs in house. So it's not like you're starting with a, you know, a blank sheet of paper and building, you're actually just building like kind of automated applications to do that. And I'm extremely intrigued by this and I want to learn more about it because frankly, I don't know that much. But I think it's pretty cool um, in terms this of that. Is, regard, this is a big thing coming up in the tech industry, this idea of low-code, no-code sort of programming. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's a 
another episode on futurism and like high tech stuff that we can get into later. But that's something to keep an eye on uh, as we move throughout the journey. Well, yeah, let's put a pin in that. But kind of going back to the negotiation part, because it, it is adversarial, but it doesn't have to be, right? And and so my my kind of riff on this, and th- there's a few other ways. Like actually, I know some people who have a different riff, and I actually really like theirs because I I didn't kind of come to that conclusion myself. But my riff on it is, how do you get around the misalignment of incentives? Is through partnership. And what I mean by that is is each party in this exchange has to have something to offer the other party that they both equivalently want. Mm -hmm. So in this case, uh, and the thing that I typically offer to vendors, which uh, from from their feedback to me is pretty atypical, um, is I want to offer advisory services to them uh, about their product, right? Like new feature enhancements. I want to be on their advisory board. I want to like, you know, obviously selfishly, I want to have a say in it, but my viewpoint on it is I want to help them make money through products and features that will scale for them that maybe they haven't thought of. And I feel like my feedback is pretty invaluable in that regard. And what they can offer to me is they can have a product that better suits my needs at a price that I want to see. And maybe they're willing to, you know, shave off a few dollars on the cost of things because of the value that they're going to see through the partnership that we have with one another. And I think um, that's pretty innovative and a, a lot of people aren't approaching it that way. I, I'm, I'm in this exact same scenario with our studio uh, right now. Uh, I love our really? studio. Yes, yes. So Tell they, me more. I don't know how much detail I can get into, but essentially they have a service which will go on the cloud and you can run analytics on the cloud through our studio. It's uh up and coming sort of service, but they have asked me to come and talk to them about the features and which is, you know, to your point, it's it's benefits yourself as well because you can shape the product that you want. You know, it's it's not just them serving you. You can shape the sort of features, bells and whistles to your own needs and probably yeah. other people, 80% of other people need your same sort of uh, insights. So exactly. It's like, how can I help them make money? Right. They help me because I get the products and features that I need to do my job. They get help because they're going to make more money off of these features, which they wouldn't have necessarily built natively had this feedback not been given and totally. kind of the things that come along with it, like, like user acceptance, testing, being willing to be a beta tester on things that aren't necessarily production ready, like all the, like the warts that come with it too. Is, is because both parties have skin in the game. And there is a different model, which, I, which I've seen more recently, which I'm really intrigued about as well, is kind of using a third party, like via like an investor or something like that, and having an, a, like an advisory capability through the investing services of who, who is like actually investing in that technology. So wait, wait, is really is this- interesting. So it's like a middleman that uh, is funding the product that you are providing advice to. Is that, is that what you're saying? Yeah, kind of. Again, I'm not actually doing this, so I don't know a whole lot about it. But essentially, they're, they're always it, like unless somebody some company is completely bootstrapped and self-funded, everybody's got investors. Right. Mm-hmm. All these technologies. And therefore, there's in the relationship, they're sort of a silent partner. Well, what if they weren't so silent? What if you as the organization or a leader in the organization has a relationship with that investing service 
and is able to provide that kind of, you know, that life support to that company, but also the advisory capability that can help them do really great work. And then, you know, what's in it for the company? Well, the company gets a captive audience of people that are, have relationships with that investing service, right? And so, like, one of the things I would say is, like, what I've seen some of these companies do is they'll have, like, tryout companies. Like, it's like, hey, we go to XYZ company, and we'll give them early adoption to this software that's not even on the market, yeah. and they'll just get to try it out. And I'm like, oh, that's really cool. Like, I am super intrigued by that. So I, I don't know if you guys ever get kind of th those type of whiffs of what's going on, but I've seen that more recently and it is super intriguing. Well, I mean, it, it kind of like, uh, it, it does two things for your company. Like A, it kind of wets your beak, you know, it gets you invested in sort of this uh, uh, system that they're already generating. It gets you some insights. And if you like it, you're gonna start building mechanisms and systems on top of that, which, encourages you greatly to re-up that software it's like the, it's like a drug dealer on the comeback like the first one's free the second one you got to pay you know <laughs> it's, yeah it's first taste this, is always free yeah yeah that's why they sit outside the uh you know chick-fil-a stand in the mall and hand you a nugget right get you Absolutely. going but kind of on the people analytics front that's been a really interesting search so uh, i'm kind of in the middle of it i don't have any really strong conclusions but one of the things that I've appreciated about it is how it's opened a lot of doors to the companies that I'd never even heard of. Right. And, and, and kind of seeing what, what really is the current marketplace in this space, because, you know, it wasn't that long ago, I would say like even pre pandemic where there was really only like one or two players in this space, you know, like real players. And now it, it is really, that market has exploded. And so I'm really curious to see, all the things that are out there and kind of being a part of that, that, that discovery. And it also sounds like you were kind of hitting on some uh, fundamental, like Peter block consulting principles there. So be upfront in the negotiation process about like what you will do, what uh, you expect from the client, make sure it's uh, mutually agreeable between the two of you. And therefore you can walk away with an understanding of the obligations of both parties and the benefits that both are going to see receive as well. <laughs> that is such a nice way of putting it, Scott. I am all, usually horrendous to deal with, but that is a very nice way of putting it. So uh, uh, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying it's 95 to five, uh, but it can be. It can be. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for kind of hearing me out about that. Um, I don't know what, what what's on your mind right now. Well, you are in Napper Castle today. I am in Heinz Manor. However there is momentum momentum to go back to the office all right we, Ooh, we saw, say more about this this is hot this is hot topics. This, this, this hot action right here right so what is about like 10 days ago we saw that elon musk uh sent out a letter to his executive saying everyone must come back to the office for 40 hours a week we saw a very similar note from uh, jp morgan saying you know essentially everyone come back to the office you're, you're done working from home uh, what, about a year and a half ago, a year ago, Twitter sent out the opposite message, essentially saying, work, work from home, we'll work whenever you want. These sort of like unilateral decisions, while it's very definitive, I, I think it's like the antithesis of people analytics. It doesn't allow for any oh, goodness, yes. insights. It doesn't allow for any nuance. 
it's a one-way door in that you can't change it at this point. Um, and there, there's not a whole lot to learn anymore, even if it would be beneficial to the organization to do so. Well, so we, we're officially wading into the return to office debate. And, and I, first of all, I love it. And I really love what you said about it's like a travesty to the people analytics space. Cause this, mm -hmm. this is another common refrain that I have with people I talk to at work is if something is empirical, like if it's testable with data, then why are we treating it like it's not right? <laughs> and so it, if, if there's the premise that, you know, your CEO walks in and says, you know, it could be, it could be one or the other, it could be the Twitter version or the, you know, the Elon Musk version. It could be like, Hey, we're staying from home forever. And I know the truth. It's like, well, that's an empirical question or, Hey, we're all, we're going full in on coming back to the office because I know the truth. And it's like, well, how do you know the truth? And, you, and let, let's, let's get into that, Scott, because I know you, you've done a lot of work in this space or you are doing some work in this space. I, I am doing work on this space. I, I really can't speak to that. I, I can speak to outside research and this sort of thing. Uh, well, I mean, what are your opinions on it? I guess I would say like and what what would, what would guidance would you give from yeah. just being a knowledgeable human being? So, well, 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 first off, organizations, for the most part, are made up of tons of people. Tons of people mean tons of opinions, tons of life circumstances, tons of perspectives, et cetera. So the idea that everyone wants to work from the office is a, a fallacy based on everything that I've seen. People love working from home. People absolutely love it. Uh, on the flip side, uh, not everyone wants to work from home either, right? So, I mean, th th there's some nuances here, uh, but I, I guess my, my question is, is it good for people to work from home o overall, overall. And th th there's a couple well, ways Define to... good because yeah. you've already hit on like, like I see this as fundamentally a multifactorial problem, right? It's like, okay, what are people's feelings about it? How does it affect productivity? How does it affect cost of the organization? And how does it affect things like retention at the organization mm -hmm. and therefore all the downstream consequences one way or the other, whether people stay or go. So the positive consequences of retention or the negative consequences of retention in terms of your workforce. And there's probably factors that I'm not even considering that are absolutely material to making this decision as a company. Well, we know that we know that people like to work from home. I mean, it makes sense. Like you wake up in the morning, you go, you make coffee, you uh, go walk the dog for an hour, you go sit down at the computer, et cetera. Uh, you don't even have to put on pants. You don't have to shower if you don't want, all these sort of things. And that is really, that, that feels good. That feels flexible. And that, that is beneficial. But, you know, I, I like cheeseburgers. I, I like tacos, but I know they're not necessarily good for me. We do know that engagement at the office does come from interactions with folks, particularly in person particularly face-to-face uh, -face interactions where you can get stuff done. Now, oh man, like engagement is in itself a organizational uh, bias sort of metric. Essentially, if you're high in engagement, that means that the organization doesn't have to worry about you. I mean, that means like you're, you're doing your job, you're uh, putting in extra effort, et cetera. That's great for the organization. 
But on the flip side, if people are not there, there, there's also a a an, an aspect where people need to uh, be fulfilled by their job, where that's not necessarily happening at home. We know this isn't happening based on the data. That well, how do we know this? Terms external data at this point that we know that uh, video conferences are not as effective and they eat up your time schedule. It, it reduces your focus hours, et cetera, to the point where you cannot be as productive. I know, I know you have a riff on productivity. Yeah. Well, I think about like what, you know, all of these words, you use quite a few words like feelings or like how they feel good. You've used yeah. the word engagement. You've used the word productivity. I'm, I, in my mind, I'm just screaming, What's the definition? What's the definition? What's the definition? What does that mean? Because, you know, and I think we both recently came across an article that talked about a few of the definitions and it was things like, is it focus time? Is it throughput? Is it productive meetings? Is it collaboration? Is it, you know, effective communication between supervisors and direct reports? Like what does productivity mean in those relationships? And, and then I'll, I'll kind of give, you know, I want you to respond to that. And then I'll kind of give my perspective on the impacts of both being in the office and its impacts on productivity, but also being remote and its impacts on productivity as well. Yeah. Uh, so productivity for, for knowledge jobs, like we don't really have a good definition of that. Uh, really, it's really hard to measure productivity, production, et cetera, unless you're like in a factory line setting. So you wind up using like- well, can, I, can I poke on that for just a second? Because I think that that comment that you just made is so important to when the CEO comes out and says, hey, we're doing making this decision based on its impact on productivity. And if the reality is we don't even know what productivity is, how is it even possible that they made that decision empirically, right? So uh, sorry to interrupt you there, but I just wanted to kind of riff on that. No, no. The, so, so we started using these proxy measures for productivity. It's what we see in our performance metrics. Essentially, it's conscientiousness, right? So you, uh, on one hand, you select for people that are high conscientiousness and you rate the performance on their high conscientiousness. But obviously, upper leaders are not seeing the same results as they would expect or seeing uh, missed priorities that are slipping through in a work from home environment. That's my guess, that's my guess. Not to mention that there's all sorts of organizational factors as well. Like uh, I'm here in Seattle, there's a million empty buildings right now that are just, they're being heaty, heated, there's cooled, tons of security there, uh, but they're just unused. And I'm sure that- Oh, so the hypothesis I, is like sunk costs, right? You, you put in the money, you, you're paying the bills, and you have the cognitive dissonance of nobody's in these buildings. <laughs> I either A, we need to get rid of these buildings and maybe we can't because we have a 10 year contract or B, we damn well better get people back in the office to make these buildings worth it. I mean, that, that's that got to be part of it. I mean, you, you look around and you, if you're part of the finance team, you know how much money goes into these buildings and you know that they're not being used. And you know that there's probably some sort of like worker stipend on that you, you made a deal in early 2020 to like pay for internet or give them a desk at the home that, uh, you know, that you got even more kind of costs associated with it. But like from a broader perspective, like how do you get people to come back to the office? H has that ship sailed? 
you know, well, apparently like, not for Elon Musk. <laughs> well, that that's a pretty definitive uh, way to get people back. Like either come back or you're fired. Right. Yeah. We, I think in the in the announcement, it said something like if we if you don't show up, we'll just assume that you have resigned. Right. <laughs> I'm like, my goodness, that's pretty uh, harsh. I was really referring to like maybe a, a softer way, a more nuanced way, a pro-social way to get people back into the office. And there is research on this. Uh, Alex Pentland from MIT has done uh, research on uh, social media apps. Like, how do they take off? And essentially, you need uh, several examples of close friends that did it or, you know, signed up for the app all in like burst of time. So a lot of activity from the people around you in a short amount of time. That's what really draws people back. So if you see several of your friends come back to the office, friends you know co-workers whatever come back to the office together you're going to feel that social pressure to go in the office as well and there's also the aspect of when you're in the office you get FaceTime with the boss and it sounds you know antiquated at this point but it's so true it is so true that that FaceTime is important because a lot of times if you're doing work at home and no one sees you and it doesn't really get traction it never really happened you know, it's funny you mentioned the social media point. Um, just on a personal level, I believe I've seen some data that shows that uh, Texas, because I live in Texas, has some of the highest, you know, return to office native kind of things that have, um, like, people are already doing this. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, what's funny is there was, I did have a kind of a FOMO moment a few months ago um, <laughs> where all these people I knew had started returning to the office all at once. And I was like, and I'm still at home. <laughs> and, and so I, I, I guess you, what you were saying is that actually it, it, there's a very human component to it because I think I felt what you were saying. That FOMO is a fantastic way to put that. I, and I think that if, if you're a leader out there and you want people to get back to the office, this is how you socially engineer it to happen without the edict like Elon Musk laid down. Uh, he, he could have uh, had senior leaders come back to the office. Yeah, well, I guess he had a problem had, having leaders come back to the office anyway. But he could have had his team come back to the office and kind of mm, model or, uh, you know, politely socially encourage people to come back. Well, I mean, th- that like there's there's even like a middle ground and you kind of touched on it a little bit. But like what if the company said and, and this would really get people to trickle back pretty quickly? Um you know, hey, all the executives are already back in the office. If you'd like to meet with them, you've got to come yeah. meet them first. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, <laughs> that and just, like, that would create a trickle really fast. <laughs> Quite literally remove all other pipelines to them. Oh, man. Like, we, we've talked about this in the past. That may create uh, a second set of incentives that we're not w- sure how it would play out. Like, would there be some sort of workaround that people would in, sort of engage in to get around that? Well, I think, and and we've talked about this before, I know, but like, there's this whole concept of like, top down versus bottom up decision making, Mm -hmm. right? And like, the whole decision in the first place, and I imagine the decisions like, again, of like, Twitter and a few other, like, I think Airbnb has a pretty, has gotten a lot of kudos for their kind of work from home forever uh, philosophy. Um, And it was like, that was probably a bottoms up process and kind of getting to that, that feelings component that you mentioned earlier. They, they listened to the employees' feelings and they said, hey, you guys really love this and 
you know, yeah. again, I, I, I suspect they probably didn't look at the productivity data because, you know, what the heck is productivity? But they probably said, hey, you know, the company, the trains are still running on time at the company. And, you know, our, our employees feel pretty strongly about this. Let's make a bottoms up decision. Whereas I see like, again, the JP Morgan and the, you know, the Tesla example, um, those are both, you know, and I think even Apple with their, their hybrid work kind of mandate, all of those have been very top down. Like, hey, this is the, you know, you had your time for, yeah. for bottom up decision making during the pandemic and now it's tops down. And I, I'm kind of in the middle, to be honest, like I, I, hybrid. I, I see both sides of it and well, not, I actually think hybrid is sometimes the worst of both worlds in, in some ways, but <laughs> um, we could get into that some other time if you want. But I'm more thinking of like, you know, I currently am in a work from home environment and I like it, but I also yeah. can see, you know, hey, we've got to have some human to human interaction at certain points, um, you know, not just for the productivity, but I don't know if you've come across this, Scott, but have you ever come across like the <laughs> research on happy chemicals? Right. Have you, uh, have you ever heard of this? Boy, I took a perception class 15 years ago, something like that. Uh, it's 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 yeah. been a minute. It's been a minute. I'll put it that well, way. There, there's a lot of branding involved with this. This, I mean, but there is actually good scientific research behind it. But we did a an exercise probably two months ago at a at a team meeting in my company where we talked about the four happy chemicals. And you know, there, there there's things that are left missing if you're not in person with somebody. You know, I can't remember exactly so, which. Uh, Chemical we, does what, but but we're it's talking, like we're talking hormones here. Well, yeah, it's like things like oxytocin and serotonin uh -huh. and dopamine and the things that you know allow you know humans to be happy. And and you think about like in-person interactions, you're getting multiple types of those chemicals that are that are allowing you like, oh my god, I get to see a human being again. Wow, <laughs> there's a little oxytocin. And oh my God, you know, we're collaborating and generating new ideas and, and getting to read body language and, and all that fun stuff. And, and, and those are the things that I think you mentioned earlier that are kind of lost in a, in, a, in a work from home environment. And so I definitely, I can see the benefits of, of kind of both, both arrangements. I, I don't know, what, what's your perspective on it? Well, you, you mentioned happy chemicals in the office. I thought you were talking like alcohol, you know, like happy hour or something like that. No, 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 know? not those chemicals. Those are a different kind of happy <laughs> okay. chemicals. Okay. Uh, I, 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 that, that's right. I, I, we, we have research on this. Uh, not, not me. I, I don't do a whole lot of physiological research, et cetera. Uh, but that office situation, to, to be a draw, had better be better than your home situation. Right. To get people to come in. Uh, have you I, I worked at a man. I, this is a, I think they're still in business, so I won't rip on them too hard. But I, I walked in the very first day of the job and they gave me this itty bay little desk and a, a crappy little monitor. And I, I, I slid my chair in and my knees hit that front of that desk and they had the cords running underneath my chair. And like the phone was like sticky and like, no, I mean. <laughs> I mean, I was like, what the fuck am I doing here? What is this? You know I, the visual I, I got? If you remember the movie Elf with Buddy the Elf, he's like the regular sized human and he's working at like a little tiny elf sized desk. That's the, yeah. the picture I got of you with the sticky phone. <laughs> yeah, I, I had a little like kindergartner chair and a little kindergartner desk. And they, they said like, here you go. Perform your best. Perform your best. Like, hell no, this is terrible. Um, 
but uh, we'll talk about physiological impediments. They like physiologically messed with you to make you unproductive. And, and that, that probably brings in that engagement concept that you were talking about a minute ago too. Oh my God. I went home that night and started searching for a new job. First day on the job, I went home looking for a new job that, that place, uh, also my manager, she was a first time manager. And she famously told me that she prided herself on not training people. So it's like, there well, you go. That's an odd thing to pride yourself on. Yeah. Say more about this. There's got to be some method to that madness, right? I, no. I guess, I, I guess that, yeah, it's essentially no method whatsoever. But I, I guess the idea was that people figure stuff out on their own. But it's like, hey, was this company? I pride do? myself on having yeah. underperforming teams. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, geez, man, that's that's nightmare scenario sort of stuff. They need an IO badly. I, I think they're out of business too. Maybe I'm just like the Black Widow. Everywhere I go, it just goes out of business. You know, oh, goodness, dude. but but like it, it, company it's, and your former employers better watch out. <laughs> yeah, they better look out. But I, I with 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 conflict comes room for creativity, right? Uh, we're, we're experiencing conflict right now in that some people want to come in the office, managers or the organizations kind of want us to come back to the office. But th this provides organizations a chance to get creative. Uh, things that we've talked about in the past not you and I, but just like in the Iowa community in general, that I don't know if they've really been tested on kind of like a wide scale, like four day work weeks, 35 hour work weeks. I think both of these could be like really strong recruiting plays to draw people back to the office and give them a shorter work week. What well, wasn't you? there like, there's even in like an extreme version. I don't even remember. I, I can't get came across this maybe a decade ago, but when they're even a book called the the four hour work week or something like that crazy oh, uh, tim ferris that that was a lot of like setting up your own like t-shirt store that automatically sends out t-shirts and this sort of stuff hey uh, if you want to be an entrepreneur i guess i need to get into the t-shirt business i don't know <laughs> I'd buy. but one. yeah no to your point though like you know they're probably it like and, and what you're really getting at is kind of back to my point about empiricism is there are experiments to be had yep. to test out some of these claims. And when edicts are made, that's the antithesis of taking an experimental mindset, right? And so let's, you know, let, let's do this thing. I don't know, what, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, uh, yeah, circle back. When, when you make these like hardline opinions uh, or stances, there's not a whole lot of room to improve workers' lives one way or the other. Uh, even if you believe it's the right direction, you, you just leave yourself with no data to really substantiate that at that point. Well, Scott, one one other thing I want to talk to you about today is this thing I've been thinking about recently about what I'm calling like the conference speaker effect. And I, I, I think this is probably relevant in a lot of different disciplines, but I see it heavily in the people analytics and the IO field. And it's conference, where- it, it, Conference speaker yeah, yeah. effect. Yeah, it, it could probably, again, I'm not great at branding. There could probably be a better name for this. <laughs> is, this, is, this a, is this a coal term? Is this coined by this coal? Is very, this is very much a coalism, right? Um, <laughs> and I think there's, there's sort of something similar, and I'll, I'll get into it in a second, about like an actual thing uh, called Gelman amnesia. And the, well, actually, I'll just explain that real quick before. Yes, I, please. I, I have no idea what so, that is. 
<clears throat> so like imagine you're reading, you know, the New York Times or, or something like that, or the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post or whatever. And they wrote an article about something that you know a lot about, like you're a subject matter expert in. Mm-hmm. And you're reading the article and you go, oh, my gosh, these people are dumb. They've got this wrong, this wrong, this wrong <laughs> and this wrong. And they clearly don't understand it. And then you turn the page in the metaphorical paper and you go to the next article and you read it and you're like, oh, wow, they really know what they're talking about here right? Well, the chances are, and that's why it's called Gelman amnesia, is chances are every one of the articles that's in the paper has the same flaws that the one that you knew a lot about, but for the ones that you don't know a lot about, you just trust it as if it's fact, right? So yeah, J- so, J- James Burke talks about this too, uh, famous for, uh, he is a British television presenter. Uh, he, he's famous for making the show Connections, have you heard of Connections? Never heard of that either. It's uh, fa- fascinating exactly. show about how essentially innovation comes about. But uh, essentially, he, he makes a posit in one series or show, I can't remember which. But essentially, what you think about the world or your perspective on the world is based on what you know. And if what you know is wrong, the Earth is flat the um, earth goes around the, well, the earth does go around the sun. We live the sun in a heliocentric goes universe. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that forms your perspective. And like, like think about what it looked like to an ancient man when the sun rose from uh, the east in the morning, what else would you conclude? But the, the sun is going around the earth at that point, even though it is wrong. I digress big time. Yeah. Are we we're going to turn this into a sun worshiper podcast. We're like, oh, the sun, I worship it. Anyway, all right. Um, well, that that is not what the what I meant by the conference speaker oh, effect. But I <laughs> what I do mean is, so I've seen this so many times, and, and you you could replace the word conference with like any kind of speaking or like publicity type event. So you, you go to you go and you hear somebody get up and they talk about their company or they talk about their product and they're like, oh, this is amazing. This is the best thing ever. And then you see that same person at the bar later or like at like off stage, and they're like, oh man, my job sucks. <laughs> and 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 they're like, or like, oh, our product isn't that great. And so I'm calling this the the, the kind of the Gelman amnesia or the conference speaker effect, where it's like, you know, you, you hear somebody talk about like how great their job is, and then they give you their business card later and they're like, are you hiring? I would love to work for you, man. Don't I don't know. I, I see this as, as pretty prevalent <laughs> in our field. And so I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about this? Have, have you had this experience? I've had it multiple times. Uh, no, I have not. Why, why do you call it the conference speaker effect? Because they get up on the stage and they're like touting yeah. like how great their product is. Boy, I can and see you're this like, being... And you're jealous. You're like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And then and the, the crazy part is you hear the next speaker and the, this actually kind of goes back to the FOMO point from earlier. You hear a speaker and they're like, oh my gosh, they must be doing the best stuff over at this company. We are so behind. And it's kind of like you're reading that article that you know nothing about and you're like, wow, this paper really knows what they're talking about. And then you talk <laughs> to the person later and they're like, oh, we're so behind. And you're like, well, you were on stage and you said you guys were so ahead of things. What's going on here? Oh, it, it, man, I've, I've probably done, I don't know, uh, eight PSYOP presentations, a million other conferences, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And everything is done essentially 
within the week before. Like it, it, exactly. It's, it, it's usually pretty good. It's usually pretty good. But if the audience only knew how much just chicken wire and duct tape is holding together that PowerPoint and the presentation, they would be they they'd, they'd leave. They'd walk out the door, right? Um, and the, the same thing for organizations. You you see a slick PowerPoint, and you, it, it looks professional. It looks good, but it doesn't doesn't necessarily mean that the product is fantastic. Or I think to your broader point that the organization is good just because they have a cool graphic designer on their staff. Yeah, and and, and I think about this in terms of like I think. Um, this may be a year, maybe even two years old now, but McKinsey had put out probably the best uh, maturity model of people analytics I've seen. And of course, the, the top level of the maturity model was something like making reliable predictions. Mm-hmm. And in the, like a footnote or somewhere like later in the article, it says, and McKinsey has yet to come across an organization that is doing this. <laughs> And so what there's, and, and of course, every, if you, you talk to any person, they're like, oh, we're trying to aspire to be, you know, the top level than the maturity model. And so this is, I think I even introduced this on an episode prior, but where I was talking about, like, I have this riff that everyone's behind, like no one's ahead, yeah. right? And yeah. it, it kind of comes from this, because if you actually talk to the people who are quote unquote ahead, they often feel like they're behind too. You get this sort of uh, compression element too, where if you're making innovative uh, sort of products, et cetera, it's it's just kind of like nudging the field just a little bit, and then like you release that information out to the public, et cetera, and everyone can immediately catch up to that point, right? So you're constantly just like kind of inchworming through progress. So that makes sense why like an organization that is ahead of the game, as it were, is not as far ahead as they think that they are because the competition yeah. just catches up immediately. When I, I'd like to, you know, kind of compliment, you know, you and I here for a second, because both of us have done extremely innovative work in our careers. Right. And yet we're still willing to acknowledge that, that you know, Hey, before PSYOP, I put together the presentation. <laughs> less than a week. And so what, what I think the message is to our listeners is like, you know, there's a lot of humility in even the people who are doing the best work out there. And if you're interested in kind of those authentic conversations with with people who are like willing to say, hey, we're not engaging in the conference speaker effect or whatever you want to call it. You know, we're going to tell you kind of how the real things are. This is the place for you. Right. I don't know. What do you think about that, Scott? Yeah, and I, I think we're also like uh, dancing around like the Dunning-Kruger effect as well. Like the more you know about something. <laughs> the more you know you don't know like i i've dabbled in nlp and like when i first did it i was like hell yeah i'm the man and then i met someone that really knew nlp and i was like i know nothing i know nothing and these people are amazing and i should have never even tried <laughs> you know this sort of thing do you want to hear something funny about that i don't I even know if this is true do. but i came across this the other day i think it was on linkedin and somebody was saying that the people who wrote the Dunning-Kruger effect article actually did the analysis wrong and the Dunning-Kruger <laughs> effect might not even be real. <laughs> I, I think it's a uh, face value. Which is like the ultimate, that's like a meta irony, if that's true. 
I mean, they, as long as they didn't say that they didn't suffer from it, you know, this sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, just pick up well, Twitter. Hey, yeah. Yeah, like, th- this has been fun. Um, I think just as we kind of wrap this thing up, I think it's really important to introduce that in the next few weeks, um, and I, I'm pretty excited about this, we, we're going to start having guests. You know, like, I think we've got something like six or seven maybe lined up now. And, uh, you know, this is no longer just going to be the Cole and Scott podcast. This is going to be the Cole and Scott talking to people who are actually probably interesting podcasts. So I, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty excited about that. And this thing, you know, honestly, it's started to become real. And, and that's fun. Super excited. We're going to have a variety of topics that uh, Cole and I uh, have limited exposure to, I believe. And we don't really have a whole lot to say about it, but we're going to bring in people that do. And uh, I can't wait to learn along with uh, everyone else. Well, this has been the uh, Gelman and Misha podcast. Ah, just kidding. This has been the Directionally Correct podcast, a people analytics conversation between Cole and Scott. Thanks for joining us today. Bye.